So, uh, but it's good to be with you. We're going to be talking about an important topic, and let me just kind of introduce it this way. Um, in 2002, about six, seven years after I came on at CMDA, Christianity Today and the Christian Management Association uh, created an award um, for the best Christian workplace in the United States. I didn't know anything about it until they contacted us and told us we were a finalist. They had actually done a survey with their staff. And long story short, CMDA was picked as the best Christian workplace in the United States. Looking at all churches, colleges, universities, I was amazed and humbled. And part of the reason that happened, a large part of the reason that happened, are some of the principles I'm going to teach you today. These principles very much apply to community health work, and we're going to be talking about that. But these principles apply to any workplace situation where they can make a, a tremendous difference. And the reason they're going to apply to community health is because, I think I'm about to blow up, um, is that that's where I first developed them and used them, and it is what turbocharged what we were doing in community health at Tunwick Hospital way back in the 1980s. Uh, but I want to let you know those principles are still something I use uh, every day. So let's dig into this. Um, you know, we can, we can talk about people's health habits all the time, and this doesn't just apply overseas, it applies in this country as well. And we're going to talk about that. So what are the most common health problems in developing countries? You can begin thinking of some of those. I know infectious diseases and diarrhea and vomiting, the biggest killer in Africa, kills more kids than anything else, and malaria and HIV and childhood diseases and all sorts of things you could begin to talk about which are preventable. But then when you talk about developed countries, what are the problems? It's high blood pressure, obesity, diabetes, heart disease, which are all what? Preventable problems. <laughs> Most of our illnesses that we deal with are behavior-oriented. I think this one over here is having trouble keeping up with the data flow, but let's keep going. So what do these have in common? They have the commonality of their preventable diseases. So the traditional solutions we've had is more is better. Uh, more doctors and nurses, more hospitals and clinics. I remember when I used to go out in the community and start talking about uh, the difficulties as we went into the villages. and They would all say to me, Dr. Stevens, yes, we have health problems. You just come build us a clinic, you send us a nurse, and we'll be healthy. That was far from the truth. Meds and technology, let's get better medicines, better technology, let's get accessibility where people can get the health care they need. It costs too much. The biggest problem in the United States is health care costs too much. That's why we have the insurance crisis because no one can afford it. Uh, safety nets, uh, let's have uh, more outreach into inner cities and difficult areas in this country or more places overseas where we go. And health education lets people know what diseases are and how to approach them. Okay, you all want to raise your hands and tell me how many had a donut for breakfast. <laughs> but you know that's not good for you. See, we have all kinds of healthcare knowledge, even as healthcare professionals, and we ignore it. I had a donut this morning too, so because um, I was rushing out and I wanted something quick, along with my cu hot cup of tea. So uh, knowledge does not change healthcare behavior. 
very often you can work at it and you make some progress, but knowledge does not change healthcare behavior. So, of course, in community health, it's that innovative solution of let's get communities taking responsibility for their own health and individuals begin taking responsibility and it's uh, a very creative way. If you ask me what was the most important thing I did 11 years as a missionary in Africa, it would be the community health program I had the opportunity to start and lead. And I was CEO of a hospital and built a nursing school and a hydroelectric plant, double the size of the hospital and saw innumerable patients. I saved more lives in our community health work than I did in all the rest combined. So people, though, need to desire change. Most people don't like change. We don't like change. And people around the world are the same. And often you're working against ingrained cultural beliefs. They go along with health. What principles can be used to create that desire? How do you get people to want to do what you're training them to do? And can these principles transfer across culturally? And I think they can. So there's a psychological foundation. That guy with the great afro, you can't see it there. Well, I got this new computer, and it puts out 4K, and most, I'm finding out many projectors can't handle it very easily. That's a great afro I had back then. I just wanted you all to see that. Uh, well, thank God that went away. But um, my hair was so curly when I was young. I was thanking God when afros came along. When I was in high school, my nickname was Scratch. Because the other guy said my hair was like a scratch pad you used to wash pots with. So uh, I was glad when afros came out. So there's basic human desires. And one thing people desire is respect. People respect them for who they are and what they knew. Uh, they desire recognition of their accomplishments. Uh, they want to have a feeling of self-worth. What I'm doing is important. It's making a difference no matter what part of... Uh, what they're doing. So what about money? Is money a motivator? Can you pay people enough to change their health practices? Money's actually a demotivator. If people can get their basic human needs taken care of, safety, security, those type of things, uh, they will focus on that. But you can never pay people enough money for what they think they're worth. It's always a little bit more. So always a little bit more. And um, uh, money can demotivate, but it doesn't motivate people. There's a great book we're going to talk a little bit about. It's been around since the early 80s and has been uh, revised and updated called In Search of Excellence. And what they did in that book was actually look at the top uh, companies in the United States and try to figure out what made them successful. And we're going to share some of those principles that I took and then added things to and applied uh, to the third world. You wouldn't think figuring out how Coca-Cola was successful would have much application to working overseas, but it actually uh, does. Because in any business, in any endeavor, the key component is the people you have involved doing it. And how do you motivate them and your, quote, customers? And in community health, your customers are the communities, the individuals that are dealing with healthcare problems. Now, successful companies had some common values. First of all, to be the best. I remember at the ripe age of 34, when I became the acting CEO at Tenwick Hospital, uh, when uh, Dr. Sturey, my mentor, went home on furlough and didn't come back because of colon cancer for the next four years, 
I began trying to, to see what we could do to improve the hospital. And I began a message of, we're going to be the best mission hospital in Africa. We weren't, but that's where we're going. That's who we're going to be. It was this whole idea that we're going to be the best because that is a motivator. It's a goal. It's a vision of what people want. Uh, importance of what they did or produced. They look at these companies and the people involved in them felt like what they were doing was really making a difference. Steve Jobs uh, of Apple fame, when he first started out, was trying to recruit a top Coca-Cola executive, a marketing guy. And the guy was very reluctant to a call where he said, do you want to make fizzy water for the rest of your life or do you want to change the world? That's idea of you're doing something of importance. And the guy came on board and became the marketing director at Apple. It was one of the crucial components. Third is key values. Values of quality. Uh, the idea that we're going to do it the best. We're going to do it well. Help motivate people. Uh, feeling like, yes, I'm a part of something that is not only making a difference, but is highly respected because of the quality um, you know, Cadillac had an ad. We just don't make luxury cars. We sell Cadillacs. That's the whole idea of, of quality. And the value of employees and customer service. Um, not sure where. Be the, the other couple things they said was being action-oriented. I hammer this with my staff all the time. Small actions moving towards a goal are better than grandiose, time-consuming planning. I hate meetings. I'm just giving you little things here on the side. Uh, meetings take a lot of people's time. We, you have to have some, and I agree with that. But I manage like I practice medicine when I manage CMBA. I said, let's get the two or three people who need to be here for the decision, discuss it. We'll do it standing up and make a decision. And this is what great companies do, and this is what great organizations and community health programs do, is they're not sitting around and beating things to death. I tell my staff, let's find out whether it works. We'll try it. If it doesn't work, we'll try something else. I tell my staff, I want you to fail. You ever told people you work with you want them to fail? Because I said, if you're not failing some, you're not, you're not skating close enough to the edge. And so I want you to take risk. I don't expect you to always be successful. Let's try it, see if it works. If it doesn't work, we'll try something else. And so this kind of concept, when you're working in a community health program or a hospital overseas or a clinic or whatever, helps people to get involved in the innovation and feel like they own it because they know that they are not there to be perfect. They're there to get the job accomplished. And then, of course, highly motivate your staff at all levels. And that's what we're going to get into. And there's some principles that, that not only work in business but work in healthcare. Uh, that I think are, are very important. Motivation is the key to getting people to do their jobs superbly and to get people to change their behavior. Motivation is the key. Yes, people need to be knowledge. They have, need to have integrity. They need to have character. They need to. When we hire people, we talk about the different C's, and we want a calling. We want character. We want uh, someone who's going to fit in and the chemistry is right, the third C. And you know the last thing we look at at CMBA? We look at competency. Because I can teach competency. I can't teach character. Those of you in healthcare know that medical schools and, 
nursing schools and others have been trying to teach students character because there's been a lack of it, of integrity. And that they've been at this for a number of years now and finally decided it's not going to be done because you learn character before you're 10 years of age. Your mama teaches you. Your daddy teaches you. And now there's a movement to say we need to get different applicants in here because we can't teach integrity during medical school or another type of healthcare training. Motivation is the key to getting people to do their job superbly and getting people to change their behavior. So let me give you a case study here and talk a little bit about where we were so you can understand the impact of this as I teach you the principles. I arrived at Tenwick in 1981. We had an under an 80% occupancy for the year at the hospital that first year. Uh, we had two and three patients in a bed. I remember one day in the middle of a malaria epidemic, we had 482 patients in our 130-bed hospital. They were sleeping under the eaves. But routinely, there were two or three patients in a bed and family members sleeping on the floor. Uh, we had uh, three doctors and six trained nurses in a 130-bed hospital. Um, the nurses delivered all the routine deliveries. There were over a 1,000 of those and over the years grew up to about 2,500. We had uh, no clean water. We gave the patients the same water out of the river that they got sick on to bring them into the hospital after we got them better. Uh, we had an inadequate sewage system. We had a lab that was too small. We had only one operating room. We'd often be doing two cases in the same room. 50% of our admissions and 50% of our deaths were for preventable diseases. I never saw a case of measles in all my training. I had a whole ward full of kids with measles complications, dealing with whoop and cough, neonatal tetanus, where the mother had cut the umbilical cord with the garden knife at home. If you want something to break your heart. And, of course, diarrhea and vomiting and dehydration. Uh, back in the days for interosseous, I used to put in three, four to five cut downs a day in kids so dehydrated we couldn't get an IV in them. So it, it was, uh, you know, running... 16 hours a day and every third night call and you get them better and then come back with something else. And uh, we had a catchment area of 300,000 people. So how do you change the behavior of 300,000 people without radio, without TV, without newspapers, without billboards? And of course, community health was pretty much in its infancy back in those days and get a picture of what was going on. There's a typical, well, I guess you won't. There's a great picture, but there it is. It takes a while for you to catch up. You can see three or, four pay, uh, three or four family members on the floor, three patients in a bed. I want you to notice that great afro, but it keeps going away. And there we are just as we went out. Here's a clinical thing for you. Anybody know what that is? It's a leech on the eyeball. It's one of those things you don't teach you in medical school. I just wanted to let those of you... No, so if you see one, you'll know what it is. How do you get it off? You just can't pull it off. You paint it with viscous lidocaine and they just drop off. So I had a kid almost bleed to death from a slow bleed from a large leaf in his hypopharynx. I couldn't figure out what was wrong and Dr. Sturry came up and said, oh, just get a little zedicane, lift it up. There's this big old leech up there. And he had a hemoglobin of two and a half from the leech in his hypopharynx. So a little medicine on the side here. And then this is Tenwick today, uh, one of the largest hospitals in Africa, going to 400 beds. I apologize for what's happening with this projector, but anyway. So let's talk about innovation. 
Uh, I, Dr. Shuri, my mentor, turned to me in 1983, two years after driving the field, and said, David, we got to do something with all these preventable diseases. Would you have time to start the community health program along with your other duties? And uh, so I was working full-time, and we made a big decision, took one of our six nurses out of the hospital, took away a call for her, and she became the, uh, the coordinator of community health. And then we took three nationals, none of them who had had any formal training, and, um, and they were actually medicine dispensers, people we had trained ourselves to work with us, and that's how we began. Community health committees, and this is pretty routine things, but some people aren't aware of how this is done. We would go into the community, find 10 or 15 of the leaders, begin discussions about health in the community, and as they begin to see the need, and you know, they tell me I, they wanted a clinic, and I turned to them and said, I'd love to have you have a clinic, but we don't have it. And I didn't ask you what I could do to make you healthy. I asked you what you could do to make your community healthy. And as they begin to get ownership, we would come in and give them formal training using psychosocial teaching methods. One of the things I've seen in community health, those who are involved in it, is there's a lot of emphasis on training the health workers, or the health helpers as we call them, because workers get paid, so we had helpers, not workers, is that you don't spend enough time really training, supervising, motivating your community health committee. And uh, we spend a lot of time, because if you lose a committee in a village, if it fails, you're unlikely to get back into there in the foreseeable future. And so the committee is the most important thing. It's not the health helpers. You can replace those. Uh, but you have to motivate your committees and train them as well, and we'll talk about that. Each of the community committees then would start with seven health helpers, volunteers from their community that would work three and a half days a week. So remember that word volunteers because you've got people that you're not paying that you're going to uh, try to motivate and one of your main groups to motivate to work hard and accomplish the goal. And, um, and some committees ended up with many more than that, but that's how we started. We did training. It was uh, two weeks and then a, a two-week break and then another two weeks, so it was four weeks of formal training. Uh, we did it away from the hospital. For those of you who may get involved in that, that's important because if you do it at the hospital, people think that they now are employee of the hospital. So always did it away from the hospital site. Uh, it was group dynamics with hands-on learning. It was a matter of here is a psychosocial teaching using stories or dramas or whatever they were going to use to teach. That's how we taught them. And um, those methods are very much internalizing the knowledge. And then practice what you learn. In a day of learning it, you're out doing it. If we were teaching evangelism in the morning, you were out doing it in the afternoon going to homes. So it's hands-on, practical-type learning. Uh, people learn best from uh, stories, songs, dramas, and pictures. That's why testimonies are so effective, because you can set up and tell principles. But when somebody stands up and says, my life's been transformed by God, and let me tell you what he did in my life, it makes a big difference. And the same is true in healthcare. Uh, it would make an enormous difference. And for those of you in healthcare, they know this, but some do not. For example, if we were teaching about diarrhea in a village, uh, the community health helpers would dig a ditch down the hill and a little uh, hole at the bottom, and they'd go down and get a barrel of water, and they'd stick some tree branches into the ground and put up a sign, this is the Angoras River, the river that ran through the area, and they'd invite the village to come out, 
And first a woman would come and she would have a baby on her back and a toddler in her hand and a bundle of laundry and she would go down to this ditch that they had dug coming down the hill that the water's being poured into and she'd get out home with her soap and she would start washing her clothes and all the soap suds are going down into the basin at the end. And then a few minutes later, somebody would come up with a goat or a cow and of course they're kicking mud in the river and they're trying to give the, 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 the animal a drink. And then uh, a man would come up and he would look around. He's wearing a blanket like he's seen if anybody's around. And he would urinate in the river. Well, it looked like that because he had a bottle under there with him. By this time, you know, the, the women are throwing their aprons over their head and laughing in embarrassment. And then someone comes out and they have bendy moeti, their stomach's going, and they're squatting by the river and having diarrhea. At least it looks like that. And so... Oh my goodness, by then everybody's in, you know, going to town on what's happening. And then you sit everybody down and say, What did you see? Oh, I saw this. I saw this. Thank you, thank you, thank you. What do you think the problem was? Too much sugar in the tea. Thank you very much. Anyone else? <laughs> and you ask those questions until finally somebody says, Well, I, I think the water was dirty. You know, because what happened after they did that, a woman came got some water, took it over to her husband sitting by a fire. He got sick and they had to carry him off to the hospital. So somebody says, well, the problem is the water was dirty. Well, and everybody agrees and talk about that. And then, you know, this is taking an hour, hour and a half to do this. And uh, then they say, well, how do you clean the water? How do you get clean water? Somebody says, well, I, uh, I, I know somebody who has a spring. They don't get sick. How many people have springs? Uh, not enough. Well, what else can we do besides that? And finally, someone comes and says, well, maybe I heard somebody, they boil their water. Man, that seems like a waste of firewood, but they boil their water. And they don't get sick. A lot of discussion. And then how do you boil the water? Well, let's hold her the fire and do it. And uh, when you finish a lesson like that, people never forget it, and they go home and tell everybody they know about it. Because it was dramatic, it was humorous, and when it was all over, you knew to do the job when they say, you didn't teach us anything, we taught ourselves. So that's the community health psychosocial method. And then practicing what you learn, break assignments. They would take during the break, they'd go home and draw a map of their community and the 100 homes that were closest to them. Uh, they would change practices in their own homes and other assignments. So when they were going home between their training, those things helped. And the content was 50% was teaching prevention, over 25 interventions from latrine building to clean water to burn prevention, raise fireplaces to prevent burns, immunizations, prenatal care, rubbish pits, hanging wire, clotheslines. Why are they important? Because try to close on the ground, as people did in our area, you've got scabies mites on them. How to f- solve family disputes, parasite prevention, ORS making, all sorts of things. 25% of the time they treated the 10 most common diseases. That was a big decision for us because um, community distribution of uh, family planning methods was part of what we did. That's where our funding came from. Uh, malaria, peptic ulcer disease, other things they could treat. And 25% of the time sharing their faith. This is an enormously effective evangelism method. When you go there and you're helping someone dig their latrine and they say, where did you get a job at the hospital? Oh, no, I don't have a job. Why are you doing this? Well, the Bible tells you to love your neighbor. We had, through our community health program, in the years I was there, up to 10,000 people 
a year come to Christ and door-to-door evangelism through community health and development. It was such church growth. We had to hire people in our program to go out and teach the pastors how to deal with the church group. So let's talk about motivators. We're getting down here to the crunch um, now that we've got the context. And there's really five basic motivators, how to motivate people. First is a sense of pride. Let's talk about that. Excellent communication. Non-threatening comparison. I know how I fit in. Competition. I can... I can succeed and be recognized for it, and in creating a sense of family. I'll ask some of the missionary doctors what this patient has, but we don't have time. Okay, let's talk about those things. And there's lots of things you can do in each of these areas. They seem like simple things, but they are huge motivators. Cultivating a sense of pride. The individual needs to understand, I'm talking about our community, volunteer community health helpers now, and the committee members, individual importance to program and the community. Uh, So when we did this, the community selected the health helpers. We didn't. So they felt like they owned them. They were their people, and the community recognized these people. Some groups had actually competition, job applications, even though the people weren't going to be paid. And uh, they would spend a lot of time during training. We'd give them a, a set of index cards and had all sorts of characteristics. Woman, man, educated, uneducated, healthy home, unhealthy, Christian, non-Christian. And they'd sit there and they'd divide the cards in two piles. These are the things we want in our health helpers. These things aren't as important. And then they would prioritize that pile. And then the two groups would get together and they would blend their two together. And when they finished that, they knew exactly what they were looking for and their community health helpers because they discussed it and made the decision. So the community selection and training created a sense of pride. Uh, Identifying with the community. Uh, We wanted ways that people could be recognized. We talked about uniforms. Everybody thought uniforms were the government and they ran away. So we found an overrun of, of Pan Am flight bags. They were fluorescent red. You could see these things clear across the valley. They glowed, and we imprinted them with our logo, and anybody saw one of those bags. Back in those days, we had a button-making machine. We could make buttons at any time. We'd get these big buttons that he was a tortet up to Lindo. I'm a helper of health, and people began to recognize this. So this gave them status in the community, that what they were doing was being recognized and was important instill a sense of accomplishment. When we finished our training, we had uh, a graduation ceremony. We made it the biggest deal you'd think they're graduating from the university. We invite in them the district officer of health. We would have speeches. We'd bring in their families. We would grade a lot of hoopla. We got beautiful diplomas that looked like they graduated from the local university because as you get this, it's not what you give, it's how you give it. I still think I'm going to blow up. Um, so let me give you an example of that. If I said to one of you, I'd like to give you this pen, you're the best at what you do. If anybody I know, you'd say, well, thank you, David. That's a, that's a $1.39 pilot. But if I did it at the state nursing association or medical association or whatever you do, and they gave you this pen, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to have the president invite you to the Oval Office and give you this pen. You may not even like the president, but you have your picture up there with the pen in in a frame. It's still the same pen. 
It's not what you give people. It's how you give it to them. You create significance. That's why when you graduate from whatever school you're in, what did they do? The president handed you the diploma. The family came. We dressed in special clothes. You marched across the stage. And they gave you a piece of paper. (laughs) Right? So you create significance in what you give. It's not what the gift is. And uh, so we did that with diplomas, and I'll tell you the other way we did it in the community, which really made things uh, happen. Uh, So uh, cultivating a sense of pride. And the other thing was lauding people in the community. So I would write letters to our uh, district health officer and others and tell them the good things that our health helpers were doing. So, And then copy that person in the community. So they were being lauded before important people or the chief or the assistant chief. So-and-so is doing such a great job. I just want you to know about it. So cultivating this sense of pride uh, and having important people there for graduation. Excellent communication at all levels is so important. People need to feel like they have a voice in whatever you're doing. One of the things we did, this uh, that is a K-Pro computer. This is 1983. This is before Max. This is before DOS. We were the first hospital I knew of, Mission Hospital, to do. That thing had a 9-inch green phosphorus screen and a 160-kilobyte, 5.5-inch floppy drive. It was a Cadillac. And that was considered a portable computer. It only weighed 25 pounds. But we we did a lot of data collection. And one of the things we did, because we didn't have a way to communicate, we printed a newspaper every month. Now, this is back in the days with a dot matrix printer and a mimeograph machine. But every month there was a newspaper. Now, why would you pick up a newspaper in this day and time? I mean, you get it right on your, your phone. Why would you pick up a newspaper? You'd pick up a newspaper if there was an article in that newspaper about somebody you knew well. So in our newspaper every month, the front page was a message from the director. Inside was an article every month on something happening in every community where we worked. So when they picked it up, they were going to read about somebody they knew. It may be somebody that accomplished something. It may be a problem in the community people are trying to deal with. And I took our supervisors in, and they helped give us information. And every month uh, we were in there. And I'll tell you some of the other ways that we used the newspaper to communicate. Uh, and then, uh, so there was the newspaper, and then there was the informal. One of the things I learned when we started Community Health Program, we went around and looked at every other program we could find. There weren't a whole lot back then. And I remember asking, how often do you supervise? And everybody would say, oh, once a month. And I'd say, every month? Well, not every month. Why not every month? Well, sometimes the bishop needs a land rover. That's great. Well, uh, what other reasons? Well, sometimes the land rover's broken. And after we started talking for a while, went to a bunch of different programs, we found out that the problem was the land rover. So with our guys, we didn't buy a Land Rover. We bought them Australian sheep herder motorbikes. They were built with armor around everything. And we told them to spend four and a half days in the community and half a day in the office a week. And so each community health helper, especially at the beginning, got supervision three times a month. Because you're working with volunteers. So they would go make a personal visit. And when they made a personal visit, it wasn't just to sit down and talk about how they were doing. They would actually go with them on house visits. 
and the supervisor would do a visit, and they'd come out and talk about how he did it, then the, the new health helper would do a visit, and they'd come out and talk about how he did, and they would spend a half day doing that. So, intense supervision. Then they met with them at the monthly meeting with the Community Health Committee, and they also met with them um, at each immunization clinic, which they were doing from the back of their motorbikes. So, intense supervision with volunteers is the key to success, and if you don't do it, your volunteers will drop out, especially in the early days. And uh, after a year or so, we had slacked back a little bit, and maybe twice a month, but uh, it was intense supervisor visits and communication happening informally about how others are doing, other people in your class are doing, all the rest of it. Uh, the monthly meetings we've talked about, and of course then that's communication with the committee as well, and then the immunization clinics. So lots of communication, both formally and informally. I'm just hitting some of the highlights. Non-threatening comparison. I went to med school here at UofL, and back in those days, they posted our grades on a sheet of paper according to our ID number. And the first thing I looked at was what? What I got on the test. What's the second thing I looked at? What did everybody else get on the test? I mean, was that 92 high, low? What was it? People have a desire to, to do know how they're doing compared to other people. There's a story told of a, in Search of Excellence of a plant manufacturing plant, they had three assembly lines. They tried motivational speakers, education, trying to increase production. They couldn't get anything to work. And finally, one of the supervisors of one of the assembly lines at the end of his uh, of their uh, work time took a big piece of chalk where all three assembly lines finished, wrote on the floor, we made this many widgets. Didn't say anything else. Next guys came in and said, next shift, shoot, we can beat that. And within two weeks, they had almost taken their production up by 50% because there was, it wasn't the management telling them. It was these guys competing against each other to be the best. People have a desire to know how they fit in and how they're doing. It's what I'm doing adequate. And uh, so every month in our newspaper, we printed everybody's activity report numbers. How many homes did they visit? How many did they revisit? How many new latrines did they get last month? How many new family planning users? I remember the big debate we had about whether we should put spiritual ministry in there. Remember this. What gets measured gets done. If you don't measure it, it's not going to be done. So we said, wait a minute. Yeah, it may be hard to say, well, somebody really accepted Christ, but if we don't measure, it's not going to get done. And so, therefore... We need to put that in the newspaper. How many people did you share Christ with? How many people did you pray with to accept Christ? And you could just watch. We couldn't do all of our interventions, so we would select which ones we were focused on. And as soon as we put something in the newspaper, numbers went up, because that's what they were getting measured on. And those activity reports were very important. We then summarized them and gave them by each committee, how each committee was doing. So the committees could compare themselves to other committees. We even printed graphs and every month sent them to the committees to see how they were improving and how things were growing. And it taught them how to interpret graphs. And if the line's going up, you're doing well. If the line's going down, you're, you need to work harder. And so they could compare themselves to the norms and all the other committees in the area. Uh, supervisor, uh, 
would help this. They would do this informally, talking about other committees when they were with the committee doing their monthly visits or health helpers and help them know how they compared to other people and innovative things other people were doing and success stories and problems that had been solved. And this, this non-threatening comparison uh, is very uh, important. And, um, and then the group meetings... Getting in the communication on training comparison, let's discuss, here's problem, let's get everybody's input, those type of things on the communication uh, that makes uh, a difference. Uh, I read a story just recently um, about uh, a guy named Frank Blake, who was the CEO, president of Home Depot. And uh, he had 350,000 employees, and he got into this next area, uh, at Activity boards, graphs, forgot. And um, he wanted to recognize people for their success, create a sense of pride, foster competition. He was the CEO of Home Depot with 350,000 employees, and every week he wrote 100 personal notes to employees to recognize them for outstanding achievement or to encourage them in their work. I heard your wife died, your mother died. I just want you to know we're concerned and thinking about you. 100 personal notes per week. We'll get more into that when we get into family stuff. And then foster competition. And people say, wait a minute, I don't know. Well, uh, the whole idea of doing things immediately and immediacy. There's a great story in, uh, in Search Excellence. Some start up a little company engineering thing and they were having trouble getting the solution. And one of the engineers late one night came up with an elegant solution to solve their problem and make the product. And the, the CEO, young CEO of the company, recognized this principle of competition and immediate recognition. He reached into his desk drawer, and the only thing he had in there was a banana left over he hadn't had for lunch. He pulled it out, handed it to the man, and said, I want you to know something. For the rest of the history of this company as, grows, as it grows, the highest award anybody's going to be able to get is the yellow banana. <laughs> And then he had pins made up and you wore them on your lapel and it was the Yellow Banana Award. But he wanted it to be immediate recognition as soon as possible uh, for, for, uh, to foster competition. It needs to be visible. visible. I, I learned some of these principles selling books door to door. No salary, commission only, two summers during college. And every Sunday afternoon we got together and we had uh, competitions, and I still remember one of them. It was a competition. You found the person who sold almost as many books as you did. You're right at the same level, and you had a pie-in-the-eye contest. You competed the next week, and everyone got to put a cream pie in the face of the other guy in front of the whole group. I never worked so hard in my life. <laughs> right? Now, I'm not suggesting you do a pie-in-the-eye contest, but it was a visible award. So... You know, we, we were way out in the bush. We had a button-making machine. We had a button for, got the most family planning users last month, the most home visits last month. And then it's not what you give, it's how you give it. And so we would do it in front of the whole committee and laud the committee and laud the health helpers. And so-and-so had the most home visits last month of anybody in the whole program. And we're going to recognize them at the big meeting of the year. We're going to recognize them right now this month as well. So visible awards. Make it as fun as you can and uh, have gifts with meaning. I remember we had a competition, and there's really two kinds of competition. 
performance and top performers. So we would set medium levels. If you do this many home visits, we're going to recognize you for your achievement. So anybody could reach that. It wasn't you were the best. So I remember one year we were doing, I forget what the topic was, and we had our big shindig, and, and I had called people up in front, and we gave them bags of hybrid seed corn, and because that was symbolic. You're planting seeds of health all across your community. Let's give Joe a big hand. He got up to this level, and we need to lot him, and now the next person, and they go home and they grow the corn and tell everybody in the community, this is why I, how I got this, and this is why... I've got all this corn production because that was their main uh, thing. So it's visible, it has meaning, it has connection uh, to what you're doing. And you're measuring both effort and you're measuring results. And then there was the person that did the greatest this month or the committee of the month or the committee of the year or whatever. I know it sounds like a Tupperware party, but it works. It works. And it gets performance. We had competitions with our supervisors. I remember we were talking about what we're going to do in the next six months and doing our planning. And I said, what is something you guys just dream you could do? They talked for a while and they said, you know something? We have these doctors coming out from World Medical Missions that fly in. None of us have ever flown in a plane. I said, I can make that happen. And so we had this, this based on effort, reaching a level... And so when the pilot would come out, we'd say, would you fly our guy back to Nairobi? The plane was empty. And they'd give him a Tatu fare, taxi fare to come back. They talked about it for weeks. They worked their head off. They'd never flown in a plane before. The other thing we did one time was they'd never been out to see the animals. They lived in Africa. They'd never seen an elephant because they worked in our area, and they didn't get out into the book. So we took them and their spouses, and they got to this level of performance and went out and stayed overnight and attended camp, and they talked about it. So these type of things where you can stimulate, and it's fun, and everybody's having a great time with it, and a lot of joking and carrying on. So you want competition at all levels, and you want to hold up examples of performance. That, that, that really, um, and here's some other things, the buttons I've talked about, uh, certificates. Let me tell you how we motivated the community. Because I said, how can I apply these in the community? We created a healthy home certificate. It, it, I got back in the end, couldn't get nice certificates. Got them from the states. They had a gold seal, a red ribbon. They looked like you had graduated from university. And of course, the principle is what you do it in front of people. So we had the chief call the whole in front of the whole barraza, the whole town meeting. He would call them up, and if they had changed five behaviors in their home, if they had a latrine, they had clean water, they were spacing their children. The children were all immunized, the fifth one. He would call them up, and he would say, We are well in our home. And he would lob them in front of all their families and friends. And then they would take it home and put it on the wall, and the neighbors would come in and say, Whoa, who went to university? Oh, that's not, no, that's, that's my healthy home certificate. Well, how in the world did you get that? Well, you get that by, you know, doing these five things. The first year we gave out 80. By the third year we gave out over 8,000. Now this wasn't just, I've got these things. When you got ready to get one, the supervisor, the assistant chief, and the head of the committee came and inspected your home. It wasn't your word, it was them coming in. It got to the place where the chief would not let them have a reception or a, a party or celebration at their home unless they had a healthy home certificate. How could you invite people to come to your home? So these type of things, and what did it cost? Pennies. 
We created Healthy Home Certificate Part 2, and you could five more things you could do and pick other five important things. So these things really, T-shirts, rewards, I did, we do that here in the U.S., uh, and uh, we've talked about all that stuff. And then foster a sense of family. Principles uh, involved with that is you have shared experiences, a sense of belonging, common values that you have as a family, same concerns, same things you're doing that creates a sense of family. And we have a lot of different methods for doing this. Shared experiences at the meetings that we would have every month at immunizations. The health helpers would bring in all the people and teach them and help line them up. And the supervisor had sat there with the immunization guy. We took our immunization rate in the first seven years from around 20% to over 80% in our area. Uh, because we could do it under a tree, and they were bringing everybody in. It got to the place if we saw somebody come into the hospital with measles, we were trying to figure out what was wrong and where we had missed immunizing people. Uh, Shared experiences, regular meetings. We had a yearly, when we brought everybody in, a big celebration of what had happened during the year and awards and all the rest of it. Every month, I, as the director, I was busy, but I got a stack of postcards and I tell each supervisor, tell me something that's going on in each community. Somebody I need to encourage or somebody I need to buy. And they would give me a short story and I'd grab a postcard and I would write on it, Dear Mary, heard you uh, last month help build six latrines in your village. I am so excited. Next time you come to Tinwick, I want you to come by. I want to shake your hand. Dr. Stevens, medical superintendent. They put those postcards and you'd find them in their hut on the wall. And people didn't have a lot of pictures in those days, and then they would be showing it to everyone. So it's personal, showed up, celebrating their success and caring, uh, shared rituals. We had a slogan called Beer Colo, Beat the Fire While It Is Fire, and in local language. And it's kind of like an ounce of provisions worth a pound of cure. In their, in their culture, Beer Colo means you put the fire out before I go over and burn your house down. Put it out while it's still fire. That became so popular. We put it on everything. We sh- we chanted it as we had our parties, and you know the Tupperware. Tupperware's not all bad, and uh, and they uh, it got to such a deal that the community health helpers it became their greeting. They would not say Chow McKay, they'd say Beer my Colo, Beer my Colo. Let's beat the fire while it's fire. They do it with their neighbors, and um, so slogans and. Those type of things and shared rituals are very important. Celebrations we've talked about. Special privileges. If you were a community health helper and came to the hospital and one of your family was sick, you got in the front of the line because what you were doing was so important we needed to get you back out there. Small little privilege that helped them feel different. Emancipation as committees became more and more successful than we spend them off. They were working without any supervision from us as the years went by. Participatory management and, uh, of course, a high spiritual tone with prayer and compassion and reaching out and, uh, and praying for each other and each other's needs. So what are the direct results of this? Over 11 years I was there, we had less than 12% of our health helpers drop out. And these are all volunteers. You can't get people to teach six weeks of Sunday school uh, in the U.S. Um, we had no committees drop out. In fact, we had a system in place that we would, what we call special committees. If things weren't going well, we would try to help them buy, write a constitution during training of here's how they were going to handle all the problems that come up. What if the chair is not doing his job? Well, in Africa, well, you would never say anything to the chair. I mean, it, 
you know, it's an important person. How are they going to handle that before they had the problem? And if they started having problems, we made more frequent visits and we shored them up or came in to do new training or whatever is needed because if you lost the committee, you lost that community. And then markedly increased work power. We, we, one of the smart things we did, I didn't realize at the time, we surveyed 600 homes before we started. Hired teachers, objective survey, analyzed by Johns Hopkins. And then every two or three years, we would survey 2,000 homes. A third of them where we had worked, a third next to where we had worked, and a third distant from where we had worked. So we were looking for impact, spillover, and baseline. You want to get money for your community health program? I just show them the data. We had people competing to fund the program because we had data of impact. It made a difference. We'll finish with that. Oh, I definitely need this slide to come up here. I've got to get a slower computer is the bottom line. Uh, so you can see this is 1984-1999. This was our first year. It was about a half year. Oh, come on. And uh, number of helpers, we were 270. Home visits were up to 66,000 a year. You can see the number of new latrines each year and what was happening. Data is powerful. And these are counting from our activity reports, not our surveys. Uh, new FP users went up. Immunization rate, we were up to doing 28,000 a year. Demonstrating ORS, healthy wards. I think the top year we had over 9,000. And uh, so we had data to show impact. And then impact on disease prevalence, uh, we looked at our uh, numbers from the hospital, our cases of dehydration. The first year were 2,230, and by 1989 it was down to 403. Measles went from 427 cases in the hospital to 23. Whooping cough down to 3. Tuberculosis went up because we identified cases we were missing and then began to drop as we treated. So we had all this data that showed impact, and then from surveys, come on, number of homes with latrines went from 18% to 75, 14% clean water up to 80%, fireplaces 3% up to 25% of the home with raised fireplaces to prevent burns, which was a hard thing to sell because of... Um, uh, but we sold it on the business of so you can burn less wood and, and uh, still heat your water. And then family planning, which among our area was really difficult because a woman's worth was based on how many children she had. If you had seven children, you were called a Jebioset, which actually meant you old woman. But it was a t- term of great respect. So how in the world do you get people to do family planning? And that's what USAID was interested in because we had the highest population growth rate in the world in Kenya back then, 4%. So we went out, sat down, talked and talked, and finally found the right story. Found out, I was talking to some, some old men in the community, and I said, well, what was it like in polygamy? And he, oh, we had you know, many wives, but Rhonda, they're too expensive. You can't support that many now. And I said, yeah, I understand. I can't support my one either. So, uh, so well... How about the children? Well, you know, back then if you had a child, you, you didn't go sleep with that wife until the child was mid-thigh. Oh. What well, did the children seem to be healthier back then? A lot of discussion. 
Yeah, they agreed. They're probably a little more healthier. I said, but now you have children every year because you only have one wife. Yeah, yeah. What if there was some way that you could have healthy children like the old days? Hmm, that would be acceptable. That would be good. And that was the narrative we used to not talk about limiting the size of your family, but spacing your children. Now it ended up limiting the size of the family too. And the number went from 7.2 per family down to around 4 in the years we were there. So this is uh, making a big difference. So we went ahead. I'm not going to show you the rest of this. We did the same thing in community development, used the same principles, teaching men how to make money through zero grazing, chicken projects, agriculture, all sorts of things. Today there's 1,500 community health helpers. The program continues. Over 1.5 million people have been impacted in Kenya, not just in our area, about Maasai, up in West Bokot, other areas in the country. And the program continues. Questions? We've got a few minutes here. Hello. Now let's start with you. Uh, I apologize for the video. Yes? Um, I may have just missed something somewhere, but the supervisors yes. that did the visits, who was that person? The supervisors that did the visits were people that worked at the hospital. Uh, we paid them. And uh, they had no formal training back in those days. We trained them ourselves. The best way to train people is not set them down and do training. We met with them every morning, either Susan or myself, and we would talk about what had happened the day before, what problems they had faced. We'd throw it out for them to try to solve, and other they were helping to teach each other the same psychosocial teaching methods we were teaching in the community. And then if we had to, we jumped in with suggestions. And uh, one of the, you know, I look back at those guys who came out, uh, you know, we taught them at the hospital to pass out medicines. One of them is assistant chief. One of them is uh, assistant bishop. I mean, they've gone on to leadership positions in the local area uh, because of the training that they used. Uh, but, yeah, we taught them and we mentored them continually, um, uh, teaching them how to do it, putting an experienced one with an unexperienced one, getting together and talking about issues, annual evaluations, quarterly evaluations, you know, all the good things you do. Not to nitpick, but how can we help you do your job better and be successful? Other questions? Yes? Yes. question is, how about doing this in urban area? Urban areas are harder because you don't have community. That's the problem. So you have to go in and create some community in the slums of Nairobi or wherever, or try to find some entity that has some community that you're working off of. But when you have to, the other issue that I haven't asked is, you know, we were a hospital that had been there since 1940s. So we had a big advantage because we already had respect. You walk in, you go into an area where nobody knows you from Adam, you also have to work to build trust, not just community. So it, this works in urban areas, but it takes longer and it's harder it, because of those two factors, building community and building trust. Because when you went in, they go, oh, wow, you guys are from Tenway. We're so glad you're here. Versus... Who are you guys, and what's your real agenda? I mean, you know, that's what people are thinking if they don't know you. 
Uh, it had a downside, too, because, you know, people think, well, I become community health helper, I'll get a job at the hospital, I'll get paid, you know, all those issues we had to deal with. So there's two sides. One more question, I'll let you go. Yes? Yeah, good, good question. We, we did it a number of ways. One is uh, they actually, we, we found out they had expenses pretty quickly. People come to their house and they had to use their own sugar and, you know, stuff to make oral hydration or transport costs or getting somebody to the hospital. So we actually, and that's a whole other talk about logistics, but they actually carried medicines for those 10 common diseases. And they made a small profit. It wasn't a salary but we had a whole system, unit dope packing system set up. Secondly, the community was responsible, this was an agricultural community, to come and help them on their shamba because they were giving themselves to the community. So there was two ways they did it. Thank you all for coming. God bless.